2: You've heard about the studio greats in places like New York, L.A., and Detroit in the 60s and 70s, but as good, if not better than all of them, was the crew in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. Keyboardist and songwriter Spooner Oldham joins
0: us for a conversation about the Muscle Shoals sound. Then, we review the new album from pop diva Janet Jackson. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions.
2: This is Sound Opinions, and Greg, you know, everybody's got 1989 on their minds these (laughs) days. Taylor Swift, Ryan Adams. yep. and uh, yet another reason to talk about 1989,
0: because that was the year that Janet Jackson released her Rhythm Nation record, one of the best albums of that decade. And Janet Jackson is back with a new studio album with the guys who produced that album, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. We're going to talk about that later on in the show, but first we've got some music news. That is Fetty Wap with Trap Queen. Jim, I like saying Fetty Wap. I'm just going to say that for the next two minutes. I think that would be great. It is one of the most hilarious names in hip-hop. He's also got a number one album. Trap Queen, by the way, was a top ten single, one of three off this album that were pre-released over the last year. And now the album finally arrives, self-titled Fetty Wap. There's that name again. The number one album in the country with 129,000 sales. First hip-hop act to have their debut album hit number one on the Billboard chart right out of the box mm. since ASAP Rocky a couple of years ago. Number two on the chart, another hip-hop act, Drake and Future, their collaborative mixtape, What a Time to Be Alive. And for something completely different, at number three, Don Henley. Still a member of the Eagles, I guess, but he's out with a new solo album that's very country-oriented. And speaking of country-oriented, we've got George Strait. He is a country titan he's got the number
2: four album in the country this is his 20th top 10 album jim greg talk about returning to the charts november 6 is the release date for the latest product from apple core limited beatles (laughs) one came out originally in 2000 it was reissued and remastered in 2011 now that collection of the Fab Four's number one hits is coming out for a third time. The 50 restored videos and promotional films being added. Apple's tagline is 1 plus 1 equals 3. Three times buying it, I think is what <laughs> they mean to say. We're going to sell it to you one more time.
0: Yeah. The Elvis estate, maybe the Hendrix estate, they're, they're the only serious contenders to the Beatles
2: crown of how many times can we resell our back catalog to our audience. But it'll debut at number one. It's a guarantee. Greg, of course, the Billboard Top 10 Albums chart measures what is actually being sold, but there are innumerable other ways to look at how music is actually being consumed by Americans. I think one of the ways that that we haven't thought about much is what is collecting the most quarters from people in jukeboxes across the country. Elliot Ramos is a digital reporter and designer for the Wall Street Journal. He came up with this interactive tool that, that enables you to enter a zip code and, utilizing data from the jukebox vendor TouchTunes uh, it looked at 60,000 jukeboxes across the U.S. by zip code so you're curious let's say Greenwich Village my old stomping ground when I was at NYU right the top three most often played tracks hmm. are two by Taylor Swift Shake It Off in Blank Space and one by Queen Fat Bottom Girls Fat Bottom Girls she- But a few blocks away, in Little Italy, it's Sweet Child of Mine by Guns N' Roses, Blank Space, again, by Taylor Swift, and a track by R. Kelly, Ignition Remix.
0: It's the freaking weekend, baby, I'm about to
1: have me some fun.
2: You can do this for any zip code in America. We have the link on our website, soundopinions.org. I think it's great to go block by block in America and see what people are actually listening to.
0: You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that's Tell Mama by Etta James. It's a classic example of the sound forged at Muscle Shoals, featuring that signature organ playing. And the man behind it is our guest this week, Spooner Oldham. When we talk about the Muscle Shoals sound, we're referring to one that came out of Muscle Shoals, Alabama, in the 1960s, especially fame studios, and one that would be sought after and emulated for generations after. And what's remarkable about Muscle Shoals, unlike some of the big centers for soul and R&B at the same time, like Memphis or Detroit, you know, Muscle Shoals is this relatively small and obscure place right in the northwest corner of Alabama. I mean, it's in the middle of nowhere in a lot of ways. Producer Rick Hall founded Fame Studios there in 1961, and he put together a top-notch house band of local musicians. That crew was responsible for some early hits by Arthur Alexander, Jimmy Hughes, Percy Sledge, and a group of these studio pros, sometimes called the Swampers, ended up branching off to start the Muscle Shoals Sound Studio down the road. So in this one remote little town, you had two different studios churning out dozens of classic R&B tracks. Pretty soon, record executives from the north were you know, saying, look, these guys are making the best sounding records of the day. Let's bring some of our artists there to record as well. So you had major artists like Aretha Franklin, Cher, Paul Simon coming down there to record with these session pros, even the Rolling Stones. They were deeply inspired by what they were hearing out of this little town in Alabama, and
2: they came there to record Wild Horses and Brown Sugar. You know, Greg, from time to time, we really enjoy highlighting musicians who have played on countless records that you know and love, and they deserve to be household names, but they aren't because they were Mm -hmm. studio pros. We had uh, Hal Blaine on the show not too long ago, the drummer for The Wrecking Crew in L.A. We once did an entire show on unsung heroes of music. Spooner Oldham certainly qualifies as another artist whose contributions have been enormous, even if he's largely unrecognized by the public. He was a keyboardist and songwriter in the Fame Studios house band, playing organ and piano on some huge hits by some of the artists that you mentioned earlier, Aretha Franklin, Wilson Pickett, Percy Sledge, and more. On his own, Spooner Oldham also played on albums by Neil Young, Bob Dylan, the Flying Burrito Brothers, Linda Ronstadt, the Everly Brothers, and he's still active today. He's uh, lending his keys to people like Cat Power, Drive-By Truckers, Frank Black, This guy is also an excellent songwriter. Along with his collaborator, Dan Penn, he's responsible for hits by The Box Tops, James and Bobby Purify, Janis Joplin. We could really devote an entire show just to reciting a list of his accomplishments. You should be asking yourself, why haven't I heard of him at this point? (laughs) That's very true, Jim. Spooner Oldham
0: recorded an album of his own in 1972 called Potluck, and it didn't sell a lot of copies at the time. But record collectors have long sought it out as a forgotten gem from that era. Now, that record, Potluck, is back in print as a reissue from the great Light in the Attic label. So we're honored to have Spooner Oldham on Sound Opinions. Spooner, welcome to the show.
3: Good to be here. Uh, thank you. Yeah.
0: Well, we're glad to have you. Northern Alabama is uh, kind of where you grew up, right? I mean, your, your father was in a string band. You had a, it sounded like you had a pretty musical family growing up in Alabama.
3: I did. I guess I'm like, uh, I'm trying to remember, Ron Howard, somebody asked him once about movies, a little child actor, you know, what did you think about being a child actor? He said, well, I thought everyone was, you know, so (laughs) that's sort of the environment I grew up, uh, you know, we had a band in the house and out in the yard a lot of times. Wow. Sort of second nature, I guess. And I got started pretty early as a teenager, really, I played on... Some records, uh, Better Move On with Arthur Alexander and Steal Away with Jimmy Hughes. I, I was a teenager then when, when that
1: happened.
2: That is not a bad start for yeah. a teen.
1: I've got to see you Somehow Not to tomorrow
3: got steeped in rhythm and blues pretty early from those experiences, you know, and it seemed like a lot of rhythm and blues things
2: followed. So you were born Dewey Lyndon Oldham Jr. Where did Spooner come from?
3: My friend Charles Phillips, we were in the fifth grade together, and he looks at me one day and says, Lyndon, what happened to your right eye? It's got like a cloud in the pupil. And I tell him the story that when I was a little toddler, two or three years old, I climbed up on the kitchen stove handles. I, I saw what I thought was an empty pan. I pulled it off the stove. It happened to—it was clean, but it happened to have a spoon in it. It fell, hit me in the right eye, and blinded me basically. And and it formed this little. Uh, Cloud and the pupil. so he thought it was sort of funny. I disliked him for a couple of weeks. I wouldn't. I'd get in the hall. I'd hide. <laughs> I thought, what a cruel joke. It doesn't joke, sound you know. that funny, no. <laughs> no. But I laughed myself and, and I realized children, they weren't being cruel. They just liked uh, the short, easy to remember name. I think
0: it's an interesting area you grew up in. You, you you talk about sort of being in the middle of nowhere, and and in some ways that's true. But the musicians who have come from that area have talked about this triangle that you're in the middle of, you know, musically, you know, Nashville, Memphis, New Orleans, maybe add Augusta to that as well. How did you hear all this kind of music early on? Radio
3: was big, you know, different. Shows There was, of course, WLAC out of Nashville, John R. and Hossman Island. They played the Rhythm and Blues records.
1: Hey, everybody! John R. way down south here in the middle of Dixie. I'm back on the scene,
3: and I'm back with Ernest. You ready for that? But I guess I didn't buy or hear many records. We didn't have a lot of that in the house. And if you went to a show, it would be like a talent show, meeting all the local... Joining counties, you know, these musicians, singers, whatever it may be, jugglers.
2: Was it always organ, Spooner, or did you become the go to organist in Memphis and Alabama by default? My
3: first instrument I learned was a mandolin because that's what my dad played. I got him to show me a few chords, and then uh, I bought a $12 guitar, Stella Awful. I bought that when I was picking cotton one weekend. You'd, $3 per 100 pounds. Wow. I would pick 80 pounds. Hmm. Piano I discovered in 8th grade. Ronald English, my friend, and I were walking down a hallway at school, and there was an empty room, but it had an upright piano against the wall, and I said to Ronald, you ever sing? Ronald, he said, well, I sing a little. So we got in there, that old piano, and played a whole lot of shaking going on, or at least jerry lewis was on the radio at that time with a hit record come on over, baby. Oh, a we sort of got through the thing all right considering we'd never played together and then the next week we started practicing we got pretty good with cover records we weren't writing then and People would ask you to play their little parties, you know, for a few dollars, kind of thing, or, or nothing. Organ came along, uh, probably by manner of actually recording on a record that, you know, there's an organ there. It needs an organ on this song, and okay, that's C, that's G, you know. <laughs>
1: Take me to heart, and I'll always love you.
0: It's fascinating how these amazing studios developed in that region during that era, Spooner. And you were kind of on the ground floor of that period, working for Fame Studios, the legendary recording studio that Rick Hall built in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, in 1961. How did you get that gig as a songwriter and part of the house band for Rick Hall?
3: Rick, uh, like I said, I, I happened to play on, on his first couple of records that became hits, but uh, then there was a point when Rick Hall gets me in his office. He just built this fame studio, actually, and he says to me, I'd very much like you to join us, and would you do it with us, and blah, 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 and how much money you need? I said, I think I said $25. Uh, a week because all I need really I'm living at home I uh smoke cigarettes and I buy gas for the car
0: <laughs> <laughs> you don't eat right you don't need
3: food who needs food <laughs> it, you know also it was access to the studio to ride and play and, and I became the um, of course David Briggs was the first generation piano player I call it for uh Cause he and Norbert Putnam, Jerry Kerrigan, Mm -hmm. Terry Thompson, and others, you know, they they were like there on the Tommy Rowe, Everybody record. Everybody,
1: everybody, everybody's had a broken heart now. Everybody, everybody, everybody's had the blues.
3: Those guys, they moved on to Nashville So we started what I call the second-generation house band.
2: So now you're signed up as a keyboardist and a songwriter at Fame Studios, and you begin this fruitful collaboration with your songwriting partner, Dan Penn. What's the first tune that came out of you guys that you're really proud of, that you thought, you know, this one is a keeper? Probably uh,
3: the one that became one of our first records at became successful and the rhythm and blues charts was uh, Joe Simon, Let's Do It Over. I think that was a good, you know, that came along. Do you remember when we were together, dear? Darling, the many
1: nights
3: I held you tight, dear, as the world. Couldn't get my heart full of your love Looking back Actually I was pleased with the couple of songs I wrote in my mom and dad's basement. They had an upright piano and, and my sister Judy she would sing it. That's the only time anybody heard them. They were sort of like puppy love love songs and I'd, I'd write the lyric out and I'd put them under the Piano bench. Uh, I don't think I ever got them out to let
2: anybody hear them yet. But someday. Huh. It's not like "Cry Like a Baby" by the Box Tops. It's not "A Woman Left Lonely" or "Tears Me Up" by Percy Sledge. It's these other ones that kind of got away.
3: Yeah, yeah. It's it's being an artist or a songwriter is sort of a, a personal thing in a way. You know, I guess uh, at first I've talked with a lot of songwriters. They're like almost reluctant to let anybody hear them. You know, you don't want to share because it, it means so much to your personal thoughts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then if you break that barrier and don't mind being a commercial songwriter, then things change, you know.
1: I need your sweet
0: We're going to continue our conversation with great session keyboardist Spooner Oldham after a short break. And later, we'll give our opinions on the new album by Janet Jackson. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
2: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And today we're joined by Spooner Oldham, a great songwriter and session keyboardist who helped define the Muscle Shoal sound coming out of northern Alabama in the 60s and 70s. Spooner, let me ask you about one of the dozens of hits you played on wilson pickett's mustang sally 1966 only one of the greatest rock songs ever do you remember that session or they all just blur together
3: no 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 that one in particular mustang sally i remember well because wilson he was always fun to work with and it was in fame studio and and that day i went to the recording session and i'm thinking this is gonna be fun day well they played this little demo uh, Sir Mac Rice had written the song, and, and I, I don't think it had a keyboard on it, piano or organ, so I'm sitting on the organ bench, and, you know, folks are tuning their guitars and bass, and we're about ready to start, and I'm thinking, well, I want to I be on this session. I want to make my money. I want to be pleased with the day. Right now, I don't have anything to offer, so I just sort of meditated, dreamed a second, and, uh, I thought, well, I wonder what it would be like if I drove a Harley Davidson motorcycle to the studio. What would it sound like? <laughs> and That's my interpretation on that record. <laughs> wah, 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 you know. Guess I
1: have to put your
0: I think the call and response with you and Pickett on Mustang Sale, it was really the the heart of that song, and it sounded like that was very spontaneous.
3: It was very spontaneous, and and Rick Hall was in the control room along with Tom Dowd, engineering, and and I know back then it was a manorial tape recording, and what made my part a little special, more special, was uh, as it was going down, Rick maybe heard me do a little of it, first time we played it so the next time he cranked up the echo reverb a little bit and which you know became part of the recording because you didn't change stuff you added back then you you get it now or don't ever get it so that's what i loved about that training was well if i goof up everybody's got to do it again you know so you you put a lot of pressure on yourself Mm -hmm. which is
2: good you know Mm mm-hmm uh, Spooner, you also played on "When a Man Loves a Woman" by Percy Sledge, that number one hit from '66. Your organ line drives the whole song. Tell us about recording "When a Man Loves a Woman." Well,
3: that was an interesting day. Also, I got a telephone call. I'm home. Would you come play some keyboards on this recording? It's a the singer has. I don't think he's ever recorded before, and he's an orderly at the local hospital. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. this'll be, yeah. and this'll be, and this will be the first recording in the studio, you know, just put it together. It was called Queenity in Sheffield, Alabama. Sure, I'll be there well, I'll walk in that morning, and there's a little shiny red farfisa organ i would never seen one, Italian made instrument. Good instrument, well built, but I, it was unfamiliar to me. You know, most recording studios have a big wooden Hammond thing and right. huge, heavy things, and this was just a little thing. And I thought, well, and it had like two buttons. One was called multi-tone booster, and then another button. I forgot what it said. Well, I pushed one button. <laughs> it sounded like a thousand screaming bumblebees. You know, just awful, <laughs> terrible. I thought, well, this isn't going to work. My heart's sinking, and and then I pushed the other button. Uh, My heart sort of settled, and I was able to live with that instrument. Yeah, I love that record still, that song. He did such a good job singing his heart out. You know, he just stood up there in the middle of the floor in the microphone, and everybody played. I remember we didn't have headphones back then, so you had to really listen carefully to the other players. You know, the
0: beat, you couldn't cheat. It's it's such a sad part, and it it fits the song so well, the desperation this guy's singing about. And, And it amazes me... Spooner, that you're talking about walking into the studio that day on an unfamiliar instrument with an unfamiliar singer with a song you're hearing for the first time and then creating this timeless part that just brings tears to your eyes every time you hear it. Are you paying attention to the lyrics? I mean, you you talk about listening. Are are you kind of hearing the song and and thinking, okay, what does this need? What can I add?
3: That's a good question. Well, the the song, the nature of the way it was written, uh, descending chords... Uh, in my head, that was easy enough to just follow along. You know, don't don't do anything different. Just follow that chord, the way it's going. But I usually don't pay a lot of attention to the lyrics necessarily if I'm session player on my instrument. Uh, I listened to a lot of other things first, but that song, it you know, you couldn't avoid hearing it. I couldn't. It, it was just right there in your face, the mm-hmm. lyrics, uh, you know. It's so plain and pretty and soulful, yeah. But something about that kind of situation where you're forced to... I don't know, reach deep to be a part of it. It sort of has its pluses, I think, you know.
0: You're listening to Sound Opinions, and we're talking with Spooner Oldham, not only a great keyboardist at Muscle Shoals, Alabama, in the 60s, but also a great songwriter. And I think the first big songwriting hit you had, Spooner, was uh, with your collaborator, Dan Penn. It was I'm Your Puppet by James and Bobby Purify in 1966. How did that come together?
3: Okay, Papa Don Schroeder, uh, disc jockey in Pensacola, Florida. He comes into Fame Studio that day. He's rock business attire, dress, really clean-cut-looking guy and leather attaché case and comes through the door with these two soul brothers that nobody knew. But Anyway, I said, John, we're going to have fun today. You brought us some good songs to work with. I know he said, I don't have any songs. <laughs> <laughs> he had flown those guys up from pensacola i thought what a bleep of faith this guy has so i think dan penn my buddy might have said well there's some demos upstairs a little office and a little uh sack tape recorder and it must have been like an hour, hour and a half he came down the stairs and into the studio and said waving this box and said I-, I think i found a song and what you got there don it's the puppet and uh, that's the way the song was discovered, so to speak. The band, the rhythm section, we got the song together, sort of, the singers were singing it well. Somebody said, well, I think it needs horns. The horn players locally in most shows elemental, most of them had a day job, and they were get off the factory job at midnight. So we waited until midnight till they got over there. We played that song so many times, so many hours. I didn't have time to think about it. it may be a hit
0: or not. Yeah, it, it seems like a lot of this stuff was created, it, it almost felt like it was coming out of thin air. It was uh, it was made on the spot. It was very spontaneous. It almost seemed like it would have ruined it if you guys had spent too much time thinking about it.
3: I remember one afterthought was like, it's almost finished, and somebody, I don't know, suggested a bell sound on it, and, found a high school looking glockenspiel and I couldn't find any mallets to play with and I think I found the, you know, the metal beer can opener, soda pop opener. Mm-hmm. So I had one of those and that's what's on the record, the metal on metal, you know.
0: You moved to Memphis in 1967 and started working at American Studios there, and your writing partner, Dan Penn, was producing for the Box Tops, Alex Chilton's great early band, and they made this number one single with the letter. Then you and Penn teamed up to write another huge hit for them, Cry Like a Baby. What was that recording like?
3: Well, uh, the recording was a lot of fun because Dan and I had a difficult time getting to that song. Well, first of all, he, Dan called me and said, the record company's been after me about three weeks to uh get another record out you know just letter they did number one and uh could you help me write something i, I don't i sure i'd love to try to right well we wrote all night and didn't have any concrete song really we basically quitting to go home we turned the power off in the studio went across the street ordered breakfast i think we ordered food i laid my head down i was really tired and, I raised it up, looked at him. I said, uh, "I could cry like a baby." He, and I'm, I'm, I'm just being truthful, you know. Like uh, we've been all this work and no results. And he said, "What did you say?" I said, "I could cry like a baby." He said, "I like that. I didn't expect to hear those words. I like that, you know." long that we were actually in the studio with the band, probably a day or two later, recording that song. In the back corner of American Studios in Memphis where where we did that, there was a box like, you know, came UPS, Federal Express, I'm not sure, unidentified box in the corner. Everybody's asking, what is that? Well, I don't know, nobody's ordered anything. Well, Reggie Young went back there, Look at it. And it had his name on it. So, you know, open it up, and it was a Coral brand electric guitar. And he just sort of got it out of the box, plugged it up, and here we go. And that's that's a thing that's on that record.
2: I gotta ask you about one really productive collaboration uh, your recordings with Aretha Franklin. Aretha had been making records for years for Columbia with uh, just middling success. Then she signs up with Atlantic, and Jerry Wexler sends her down to Muscle Shoals to work with you and the band. Out of that session comes I Never Loved a Man and Do Right Woman. And those songs, are, you know, really got her career jump started. Tell us about working with Aretha.
3: Back then, I was at Fame Studio in Alabama, and there was a chalkboard at that time, had a month's activity, of any, like week one, two, three, four, and uh, I think it was January, week one was Rita Franklin. I barely knew her. I mean, I'd bought one of her Columbia albums, I think. Sort of a cocktail kind of music. It didn't move me, you know. I'm sure it didn't move her that much, probably.
1: <laughs> what is romance? Without the one you love. It's heartbreaking misery.
3: Without the one you love. So I'm thinking, well, this is gonna be interesting, uh, see what we can come up with. Well, day one, song one, and every the man popped out of the chute to do this is what we're gonna do first and we were all just sort of scratching our heads, what are we gonna do with this song, uh um, we couldn't find uh, the right way to go with it, so I just sat there a minute and meditated, reaching for something uh, to work with in my head, and I just sort of noodling that little phrase. I think Dan Penn and Chip Moman, who were in the building, simultaneously said, "Spooner's got it." Who So then uh, the players looked around at me and listened, and then they jumped in with me and we started playing it. But that's—it's sort of like a, a desperation move on my part. I wanted to be a part of something there, you know. But after that, everything else sort of flew really easily, you know. three albums with her, Atlantic Records. There was a lot of hits came out of all that stuff.
0: Yeah, you played on uh, Chain of Fools and uh, Respect, right? I mean, that was was some big records for Aretha Franklin. What kind of a person was she to work with in the studio?
3: She was just a treat. She was no problem. She was always good-natured. Hopefully she found her a home there for a minute with this band and this studio, you know.
1: People get a train coming, Ooh. don't need no baggage, you just get on board, all we need is faith to hear the diesel's humming, you don't need no tickets, we'll just thank the Lord.
2: Booner, I'm curious about the racial atmosphere of recording in northern Alabama in the 60s. You had white musicians and black musicians coming together for these sessions, and they couldn't always do that out in society. How big a role did race play in the musical environment?
3: Well, it was very interesting to me because, you know, it was something new. I was pretty young, and uh, so I was fascinated by the process. Of course, I grew up like most everyone here, at the listening music, big bands or whatever, and you notice there was black and white musicians, and they all played well together. But you didn't, and then all of a sudden there they are together with you know, and so they're just so they were so studious and appreciative to be there with us, and vice versa. So yeah, it was an easy process of uh, uh, integrating in in the recording studio musically because. Uh, you know, each have a little something different to offer in a way,
2: you know. So the, the ugly tensions we sometimes saw on the TV news are not there when people make music together.
3: Exactly right. Yeah, you know, I can go home, uh, racially mixed recording session, and go home at night and see them getting hit in the head with clubs and, you know, all this stuff at night, but thinking what a different world that is out there than yeah. what, what we're experiencing in here.
0: What do you attribute that to? Was it a mutual respect kind of thing? Was it, was it instant? Exactly, yeah, mutual respect
3: or or maybe anticipation of something good coming out of what we're doing together, you know. I think that was a big part of it. Just, uh, I wonder what's going to happen. And then you try to make it happen well, and so I think that little... That that thing of respect,
0: mutual, trying to appreciate each other's talents, you know. One of the uh, guitarists in Muscle Shoals, Jimmy Johnson, once told me a story saying, you know, I I often wondered why the KKK didn't give us more problems, because we were doing these racially integrated recording sessions all the time. And he says, I finally figured out that I think they just liked the music too much to to ever want it to stop. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I could be
3: right, you know, yeah we've always heard universal language and I guess it still stands some truth to that, you know. Oh no, my friend She's not the one for you, my friend You'd better get away You'd better stay
1: away
0: recorded an album of your own in 1972 called Potluck, and it didn't sell a lot when it was released, but it's become kind of a lost treasure for collectors over the years. Now Light in the Attic is reissuing Potluck, and I was wondering how you felt about that music coming to the light of day, I mean, decades later. I mean, does it still hold up for you?
3: It still sounds good to me, and uh, I think the songs and the music's still relevant. Uh, I was fortunate to play with a good band that day, that week. So it's got all these little odd influences that I like, you know.
2: Well, it is one of these great lost gems through the years. I think of something like Skip Spence's or album or something that rock critics would reference. Light in the Attic is doing people's service, bringing it back today. But do you ever look back? I think I know the answer to this, Spooner. You're a very self-effacing man. But do you ever look back and say, geez, if that had been a hit, the next (laughs) 20 years might have been a little different?
3: No, I... I uh, the story I got about my record, Potluck, uh, was that the month it came out on the marketplace, there were seven other albums that same company released the same week, mm-hmm. and they immediately went bankrupt. So I didn't expect a whole lot from that.
0: We're laughing. I just sort of let let it go. I'm glad you can laugh about it now, Spooner. It must have been a disaster when you heard about it back then. No, no.
3: Well, you know, because I didn't... It's not like I didn't believe in it, but it was like... It was sort of experimenting and all of us playing together, I think. So it served its purpose. The Lord he loves A rolling stone and he leads him around all the dangers on, and helps him to get
0: on to where he's going. You had a great career after that record. Uh, you, you worked with so many artists. I mean, Bob Dylan, Neil Young, you were like a first call keyboardist. The Everly Brothers, Bobby Womack, Gene Clark. You know, when you were in L.A., I know you backed up Liberace. I mean, it's an incredible array of artists that you worked with. Is there anybody that you would like to work with that you haven't had a chance to collaborate with? Is there anybody kind of on that list?
3: Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. I really can't answer that. But one name in L.A. that I I will mention, Linda Ronstadt, she was fun to, you know, I played on her first solo album. Mm Mm-hmm there was a song called Desperado that had some piano things that when I hear it today I'm still pleased about, you know
1: Desperado Why don't you come to your senses You've been out riding fences For so long now Oh, you're a hard one
2: we are talking to Dewey Linden Spooner Oldham on Sound Opinions. The Spooner, all this, all these stories from back in the day are just are wonderful. They're great. But you remain a vital musician to this day. I mean, even it, almost as impressive as that list from the 60s of folks you've played with are people from more recent years, Jewel, Cat Power, Frank Black. I mean, people still want whatever it is you deliver behind those keys.
3: Well, I think... Uh an artist who, you know, looking for something fresh and different. Hopefully, they can find that with me because that's my whole attitude. Is, you know, try to show up with something fresh and different and creative. And I mean, there's room for all of us. There's room for written arrangements. People do that well. But in my case, my kind of playing is uh, sort of remind me of what somebody said about Chet and Said, uh, "Do you read much music?" I said. A little bit, but not enough to hurt my
1: playing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure and an honor talking to uh, Spooner Oldham. Spooner, thank you for being on Sound Opinions. I enjoyed it. Thank y'all. So we know a lot of you out there
0: listening to the show love that Muscle Shoals sound. So tell us what's your favorite Muscle Shoals recording, and where do you remember hearing Spooner Oldham's contributions? Give us a call at 888-859-1800 and leave a message. We'll be back in a minute on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX with our review of the 11th album by Janet Jackson.
1: Makes a touchy situation her conscience now and then. When she feels lonely She's thinking about her mind She knows he's taking her
2: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. I'm here with Greg Cott, and that is Janet Jackson, the first single from her 11th album called No Sleep. I say it that way, Greg, because it's S-L-E-E-E-P. Man, who doesn't love Janet Jackson? All right, we've been in love with her since she was the younger sister on Good Times. Everybody knows her. She is now 49 years old. The apocryphal, perhaps, story goes that at the beginning of her musical career, she was sitting with her handlers, Joe Jackson, her father. How was she going to get out from under the shadow of those famous brothers? They said, you know, you with the right producers could be bigger than Madonna, and she said... I want to be bigger than Michael. She did step out, thanks to the production team, Minneapolis-based of Jam & Lewis, that classic album Control in 1986, Rhythm Nation 1814 in 1989. Since then, there's been some stumbles and some successes. The biggest stumble, of course, was in 2004 with the infamous wardrobe malfunction At the Super Bowl, when she's duetting with Justin Timberlake. And we were not fans of her last album, Discipline, when it came out in 2008. What is she giving us now that she is reuniting for the first time since 2006 with Jam and Lewis? Let's play a track. We'll come back and we'll give our opinions. This is from Janet Jackson's new album, Unbreakable. It's called Gonna Be All Right, G O N, Be All Right on Sound Opinions.
1: Yeah.
0: That's going to be all right from Janet Jackson and the Unbreakable album. Jim, as you mentioned, she's gotten back together again with the old squad. Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis are back in the fold in the studio. That's where she belongs. That that, that was a team that was meant to be together. Absolutely. On the discipline record in 2008, I think you're absolutely right. I think it was the nadir of her career. And there was sort of a hint of desperation, more than a hint. It it reeked of desperation. Let's put it that way. She was really heavy on the sexual innuendos and the kinky come-ons. I mean, that had been sort of a, a theme on her recent albums prior to that but really got amped up with that record she's trying to compete with the Katy perry's of the world the rihanna's and it just didn't work it it really sounded like janet had sort of lost the plot Here, she sounds more relaxed than ever. I think being around Jam and Lewis, uh, she's feeling a little bit more comfortable with herself, at least in terms of the way the music is sounding. She doesn't sound like she's trying to contend with those pop divas on the charts. She's being honest to who she is now as as a 49-year-old woman. And I think the whole idea of Jam and Lewis, they they are associated so much with that electro-funk sound out of Minneapolis from the 80s, They're not trying to do that anymore. They're actually taking these beats and giving her a a more textured, comfortable setting in which her slight but nuanced voice can really shine. This album is kind of chill and Mm down-tempo. There's a few up-tempo tracks here. I, I particularly love anything that gives Missy Elliott a showcase <laughs> the way Burn It Up does. I love that track on the Second record. Second track on the album and really Missy claims yes, it. Yes. Missy almost runs away with that with that song and she does. Woo!
1: I'm it down. Miss Jackson, oh she with a
0: crown. Otherwise Janet is in a more contemplative mood on this record and it really suits her well she wears this coat very comfortably it's a very fitting album for where janet jackson is in her career now and it may not storm the charts the way some of her earlier albums did but i think this is a very solid mid-career album from janet jackson
2: very much her best record i'd say in more than a decade yeah i'm gonna give this a buy it rating i'll agree with your buy it absolutely greg you know what they used to call this sound in the early 80s Quiet Storm. Quiet storm yeah. I love that. Yeah. Right, That's a phrase we've got to revive. <laughs> Janet is doing a lot of slow burn R&B. She is mourning the loss of her seven-year relationship with producer Jermaine Dupri. She's still mourning the loss of Michael, who died in 2009, but she's also looking forward. She's in this new relationship. She is out of a label deal that was miserable. She's now blaming the Disaster of discipline on her former label. She's got an independent label now that has major distribution. She's in a good place. And when you look back at at where she's been, it's really hard to imagine artists in, in like three decades who, who don't owe something to her, whether it's Aaliyah or Rihanna mm-hmm. or uh, Katy Perry even today. Not the greatest voice, but has always succeeded on personality and... And just just charisma and this message of "I am in control," the famous message of control, right? It, it's great to see her back in this place, mostly slow jams, and they fit her voice. It's nice to hear Jam and Lewis bringing in some electronic touches, really modernizing their sound. And you know, it's always wonderful to hear Missy Elliott. So yeah, two enthusiastic buyt. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have a conversation and performance from a rising band out of Chicago, Twin Peaks. Greg Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lin, Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, and our intern, Libby Gormley.
0: On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say.
1: New messages. Hello, my name is Rachel Hurley. I'm a longtime Ryan Adams fan, and I'm a new fan of Taylor Swift. Um, I heard your review on Sound Opinions about Ryan covering 1989, and I think you got it completely wrong. You even misunderstood the article that you referenced. The mansplaining article was about critics saying that Ryan Adams breathe new life into Taylor Swift's songs because Taylor Swift already had fantastic songs and Ryan Adams realized that and then put his own spin on them you see me in the 1989 record and I don't think that he did it as a way to get some publicity I think that it's a love letter to Mandy Moore and if you know that record forwards and backwards you know that that is a heartfelt record and when he's listened to it he connected with it and that's why he wanted to re-record it in his own style see ya Hi, my name is Ashley, I'm from Chicago, and I've never heard your show before. I just got in the car and I turned it on right when you were playing Taylor Swift's Welcome to New York and talking about her and Ryan Adams. It seems like general opinion from a lot of people is that Ryan Adams' version of 1989 is this masterpiece to getting all this attention, while Taylor's version, a lot of people say that they view it as a guilty pleasure like oh yeah I I like that album like I I just don't like to talk about it but I really like it and then Ryan Adams comes out and everyone's just making this huge deal of it and it just shows how people like to knock Taylor and not do for songwriting the credit it deserves and I do like some of Ryan Adams' versions of her songs but I just don't think it's fair that anything takes any attention away from the person who actually wrote them that's my two cents thanks so much Hi, my name's Gabe. I'm from Chicago. It's a comment about London
0: Calling by The Clash. I grew up in a post-industrial town in northwest Indiana, and I remember the night that my friend Steve took me out driving and said, hey, you got to listen to this. And he played All Lost in the Supermarket. And for me, it epitomized everything about where we were growing up and what was going to happen to us and to the people around us. And it changed my life, and punk rock changed my life started with that album and that song
1: thanks I'm all lost in the supermarket I can no longer shop happily I came in here for a special offer
2: Hi Jim Hi Greg This is Evan in Ohio I just listened to your great great classic album Dissection of London Calling and uh, I wanted to say that I particularly loved how you characterized Lost in the Supermarket as a love song this resonated for me really well because it's the song my wife and I first fell in love to. So whenever we would hang out with friends at a bar that had a jukebox in London calling on it, we would take turns uh, playing the song for each other as kind of a secret way of communicating that we were thinking about each other. So cut to eight years later, we still consider it our song. We played it at our wedding and made everyone dance like crazy to it. Hearing your take on the song did my heart good. Thanks again, guys. Love the show.